Hi, I'm Stuart Barry. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws upon the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders, one topic at a time. We all know the Lombardy region of Northern Italy, the leading industrial and commercial region with Milan as its major city. But where did the name Lombardy come from? Who were the Lombards who occupied not just the current region, but vast swathes of Italy for centuries? And why do we know so little about them? To explain all things Lombard, we are joined by Dr. Erin Marshall. Erin is an Honorary Research Associate and Associate Lecturer with the Open University, as well as an Honorary Research Fellow of the University of Roehampton. Raised in the Veneto, she was educated in Barnard College, Columbia University in New York, as well as the Universities of Birmingham and Exeter in England. She has published a number of articles on ancient North Africa and co-edited volumes on death and disease in the ancient city and women's influence on classical civilization. Erin's current research interests include the reception of classical art, as well as concepts of ethnicity and race in antiquity. Thanks for joining us today, Erin. So exactly who were the Lombards? The Lombards are one of the many Germanic tribes that migrated in the late antique period of Roman history. Various sources, Tacitus and Strabo, described them as Swabians um, who lived on the Elbe, so that's in northern, slightly eastern Germany. And then they were there for a while. And then along with so many other different tribes, the Vandals, of course, stand out. But, you know, like the Cheruski, the Chatti, the Marcomanni, the Quadi, all of these Germanic tribes, they're struggling with each other. They're infighting and then they're migrating. And so these Lombards moved into ancient Pannonia, which is, you know, roughly Hungary in the 5th century, and then fighting for resources with other Germanic tribes, in particular, Germanic and Eastern tribes, I should say, and particularly the Aruli and then the Gepids, they muscled their way into Italy and changed Italian history. That's why they're exciting. They're, they're exciting because they, well, they tell us about that must have been miserable time difficult time for the Germanic tribes moving around. And then ultimately they end up on an Italy, which is vacant, just about, and, and you know, ripe for picking. And they conquered all of it, just about all of it. And they were in charge for hundreds of years. And in some, in, in some parts in the South from the 6th century to the 11th century. So extraordinary long period of time they were there in Italy. Just defining the area that they did conquer and they settled for so yeah. long. Are we talking all of what we now know as Italy today or what region? They arrived in Italy, keeping the Avars, another tribe, in 568. And that is right on the Slovenian border. And they must have thought, oh, my goodness, you know, how, how long can we stay here? Or, you know, what, what kind of dangers are there? But actually from 568, it took them four years to get all the way across northern Italy. So all the way to the, you know, Lombardy and Liguria. So they set up their capital in Pavia, ancient Ticino, and they got all of that whole swathe. And they ruled that part till 774. But then they also went south and they had these duchies and they ruled southern and central Italy for a long time. So Spoleto in Umbria today was a great Lombard center. And Benevento, south of that, in Campania, was another one. And Salerno, even further south, was. 
when the Normans arrived in the 11th century, they're fighting against the Lombards. So it's really quite extraordinary. So that's the 11th century picture that de Hauteville conquering southern Italy. Whom are they conquering it from? Well, the Byzantines and the Lombards. So from 568, that's really quite extraordinary. Why were they actually called the Lombards? That's when you get to really something quite funny, and that's a interesting one. So they were initially called the Wanili. We get this from the major source on the Lombards, Paul the Deacon. And he says that they were called the Wanili when they lived by the Elbe, you know, where they originally came from. But that when they moved south under the auspices of a woman called Gambara and her two overgrown sons, they were given the name Langobardi. And how did they get the name? Well, it varies. Supposedly, she moved into territory, which was owned by the Vandals. And the Vandals said, you either pay tribute or you fight us. And she, being a Lombard, decided that fighting was the only way to go. And so what she did was to, to pray to Freya to win and Freya managed to distract her husband, Odin. So you have these Wanili who've been told that the women should tie their long hair underneath their chins to make long beards. And clearly the combination of these women with their hair underneath their chins and their husbands made Odin, who woke up looking at these people, call them the Lungabards because they have these long beards. So they got that name for their long beards. And you think, okay, that's obviously something, something's fishy about that. I can't think that they have their own fashion sense. So why would they have long beards? Why would they be named after them? The story goes because these women tying their hair underneath their chins and Odin sees them and says, oh, you're long bearded. I wonder actually whether they were followers of Odin and long beard was one of his epithets. So they are called the Lombards because of the long beards. You know, it could be because of the cult of Odin, I think. Okay. So what sources of evidence do we have today to tell us about the Lombards? That's a good one. I mean, I think because when you go through the very many museums in northern Italy and central Italy, which talk about the Lombards, you see some of their remains, their artifacts, you know. And that's one source, you know. So you can see those are typical pins and swords and... Deck, you know, body decoration that they would have. That's one source. The great cities of Lombardy, Milano, but also Brescia and Pavia have really very good museums on the Lombards. But actually, it's a man called Paul the Deacon who wrote under Charlemagne, was a great scholar at his time, and was someone in his family went with Alboin in 568 into Italy. And he gave a story of his people. And it's the best source we have of any put my head on the limb. Is this, is this right? I think so. Of any ancient Germanic tribe, it's a really good source. And I think maybe that's the other reason why we should be looking at him, Paul the Deacon, is he survives. And that's the key thing. But, but you know, it's, it's quite an amazing source. How were they politically organized? So in Italy itself, they take it over really quite quickly. They have a kingdom in the north, which is centered in Pavia, actually. I don't know whether people go to Pavia enough. It's a fantastic city. And they centered there. That's the kingdom. The kings are both elected and hereditary. So it seems to be one of those where you get the title from your father, but you also have to earn it and you're also elected it. And But that's just the kingdom. There are 36 duchies and they go throughout Italy. 
And these 36 duchies, they're ruled by Gastalds. In other words, they're not fully under the control of the king. They're they're semi-independent and there are unruly laws. And there's a lot of infighting as a result of this sort of vulnerable political system that they have. You know, they have the power grabs and a lot of violence. So there's not one king who's in charge of the whole lot. There is a kingdom, but he's only loosely in charge of the 36 duchies. And I think that makes him vulnerable. It, mean, it means that Charlemagne uh, ultimately was was able to de- defeat them more easily in the north. Well, hang on, before we open up that question, yeah, were they Christian? That's just such an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, they, they were Christian, but not as we know it. And, and not all of them, right? So I think one of the things Christianity does really well is, is heresies. It's an unusual religion, isn't it, in that it's dogmatic. Christianity needs to be just so. And so they are Aryan Christians, and this is Aryan with an I, not a Y. It's an interesting one. There's a Bishop Arius who converts all of the Germanic tribes, or converts a lot of them. Not all of them, right, because like the Saxons, they're, they're Christianized by the Franks. But he converts a lot of them. But this is not Christianity as we would have it today. It's it's Christianity which sees Christ as not made out of the same substance as God the Father, and that also that he's not begotten. And we know exactly what the Arians believe, because that's the Nicene Creed we still say today. They think he was made and not begotten, and that he's made of similar substance to God, not the same. And I'm saying this, and you think here in the 21st century, who cares? Well, they did. They really did, because it was this heresy, which Ambrose of Milan hated. So they were that brand of Christian when they came into Italy, and they were pagan. I mean, it's it's quite clear that they have their own rights too. But then when the king marries Theodolinda, and Theodolinda is Bavarian, and she is a friend of Gregory the Great, the Pope. And she tries really hard to make all of them Catholic. And there's a long while where there's that infighting between, you know, how Catholic are we and how, how Arian are we? And it causes tension, let alone, you know, the paganism. So the question is, are they Christian? Yes. Is it the same kind? No, not necessarily. But also, there's that, you know, we're talking... At, religion probably at, at an upper level what the average joe thought is really hard for us to know but certainly it's a confusing mess actually it's and it is do you know how religion sometimes gets wrapped up in politics often you know so the theodolinda and her two husbands they being catholic meant being pro-pope mean meant integrating in italy meant you know taking on that customs whereas sticking with arian christianity made some kings who chose to be arian more aggressive more warlike more liable to go against the pope you've mentioned a couple of times a bit of the fighting spirit they seem to show were their culture sophisticated or were they what we view as stereotypical barbarians that we see in the movies. Do you know, I just I recently, Brescia, which is just a top-notch museum with Lombard remains in it, and someone said, well, these are the Lombards and they're barbarians. And I thought, oh my gosh, because that's just not right. When you look at some of their habits, and, and they're all called the Longobards, you know, so civilization or whatever, it's, it's not the first thing that comes to mind, but it's ridiculous because in some ways they were really exceptional. And I get to give you some examples. 
the oldest medical school in Italy, ninth century, the Scuola Medica di Salerno. Nobody goes to Salerno, right? And you would never think that that has a really important history in the medical world, and it does. That was set up by Lombards. They brought in Greek texts, and they brought in Hebrew texts. They translated them. They came up with their own cures, with their own systems. And they, in fact, for a while, Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor, and the King of Sicily came up with a diploma system so that if you wanted to be a king, you had to get a diploma from the Scuola Medica of Salerno. I mean, it was a big deal. So I would challenge you to call that not civilized. And also they, they have various edicts, law edicts. So Rothari, one of the kings, passes an edict, a law edict, you know, which is, of course, the height of civilization, isn't it, law? And it's interesting, the Rothari edict, because it's not necessarily Roman. It's not Roman law. And it's not meant at that time for the Romans he's ruling. It has really interesting things like how do you pass on property to other people? And you do that in front of an audience. And it's really interesting. And so you come up with a, a word in Italian, you said a Latin verb, fingare, because a thing is when you have an audience and you give property to another person. So the Rothari edict shows just how civilized, if that's the right word, they were. And that was improved on by Liutprand in the 8th century, who I think Liutprand, this is the height of the Lombard kingdom, and the laws he passes are much more similar to Roman laws. So they have laws, they have, you know, they have medical school, and, you know, they're influential. But they still liked a good fight, didn't they? <laughs> That's what they're really known for. Yeah, absolutely, so true. I mean, it, it's, it, it's what's funny is that even Paul Deacon, who's himself a Lombard, when he talks about who are they, it's, it's the fact that the women tie their hair underneath their chins, and they like to get down and dirty and fight, too. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly violent screams throughout their history. Definitely. <laughs> lots of infighting and lots of, lots of fighting. In fact, those who want to be most Lombards, you know, the, the Aryan ones, are the ones who really like to fight, you know. So, yes, I would say that. What language did they speak? Was there a common language amongst them? Yes, they spoke a Germanic language. And they're coming in with lots of other people, but they have a common Germanic language. So they come in with the Thuringi and the, the Heruli and the, some Gepids and Avars. And all of these people are communicating in Germanic language. What I find interesting is that by the time you get to the 8th century with Ljotprand, that language is dying out. They're not speaking it. It's becoming increasingly Latin. And their culture is becoming increasingly samey with other Italians. So they do have their own language. In fact, as an Italian speaker, I might say that I was very surprised when I first started reading about them that there's a lot of Italian words which are Lombard. All those words with the G-U, guerra, there you go. Not surprising that the word for war in Italian is guerra, which comes from Germanic root from Lombards. But also to see, which in Latin is video, in Italian now it's guardare, which is a Lombard word. So Yes, they're speaking their own language and they're increasingly speaking Latin, but it clearly peppered with lots of Germanic. So they, when they start speaking Italian, Latin to each other, it's clearly peppered with lots of Germanic words. What are some of the most important artifacts that they've left behind? When I think of them, the first thing that come to mind 
are some of the jewels they left behind. So I would say that the probably the most important, single most important artifact is the Iron Crown. The Iron Crown, which was seen to be built, at least partly, with nails used for Christ's crucifix. And it's in Monza. Monza, you would never think that Monza is interesting um, because it's so tied up with cars, right? But it does. It has this immensely interesting Iron Crown with 22 gems in it. And it was used not just by the Lombards in order to crown their kings, but it was then later used by Charlemagne and the, the Carolingians after they conquered the Lombards. And it's still there in the Monza Cathedral. It's one of the most interesting artifacts. There's also the Cross of Desiderius, I think, that is an easy one. That's in the Brescia Museum, the Santa Giulia Museum. And it is a cross with a staggering number of ancient gems and cameos, including a really famous one, which is often, erroneously, I think, sadly, um, identified as representing Galliplachidia the sister of Honorius and Arcadius. Anyway, it's a depiction of her and her two children. And it's, so that that is amazing. So that cross of, of Desiderius. But otherwise, some of the architecture is quite splendid. Nothing more than the Tempietto Lombardo, it's called, in Cividale. That's in Friuli. And it is this wonderful oratory, like this prayer room, which was made generally thought by artists who were fleeing Constantinople because the emperor has become iconoclastic. Or emperor is a series of them. So you have these artists who are looking for jobs and they end up in Chividana. And it's really amazing. So some of the architectures is just lovely. There's the Church of Santa Sofia in Benevento is another really wonderful church with wonderful architecture. So that combination of that, you know, the, the architecture and um, you know, the jewels and the cross and in the crown are quite something. Who were some of the more famous Lombards? I mentioned Liutprand already. He's always seen as the most important one because he's the one who's balanced, you know, his power. So he's much, much more integrated in Italy. And he's the one who actually takes land away from the Byzantine emperor, and particularly in the Exarchate of Ravenna. So he's really important. Rothari with that, with that edict. Ratkis, which is not a really nice name, is it? It doesn't sound nice in English. Ratkis is really famous. There's a wonderful altar, which is in Cividale, again. That's particularly what makes him famous. The most famous, perhaps of all, is the last kingdom, and that is Desiderius, whose daughter, Desiderata, this is very good names here, Desired, his daughter Desired, marries Charlemagne, and he takes a step too far, Desiderius, and challenges the Pope. And Charlemagne jumps in, protects the Pope. This is the role of the Franks to protect the Popes, and he loses his kingdom. And so that's in 774. Is he, I would say, the most the most famous, perhaps, just because he's the last. So is that how the Lombards ended? Yeah, and no. Yes, and and really no. So <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> don't you love history for that? So it is in 774, Charlemagne quite quite extraordinarily calls himself the king of the Franks and the king of the Lombards. That never happens. Usually when you take over a Germanic tribe, another one, you just keep your name. It's just that your kingdom expands. But he, he gives them some kind of credit by king of calling himself the king of the Lombards. It must mean that they were a presence, you know, 
that he wants to be called their king rather than just subsuming Lombards into Carolingians. So that's how the kingdom ended in the north. And then from the 8th century, you know, onwards until about the 11th century, you know, the northern Italian cities were ruled by the Holy Roman Empire, even before it was called the Holy Roman Empire. It was ruled by the Carolingian dynasty. But that's the interesting but, that some of the most interesting sites in Italy, which are Lombard, are not in the north, but in the center of Italy, in the south of Italy, because they continue there. They continue. In fact, various Lombard kings really try to take on the title of King of the Lombards. So Arecchius II from Benevento, he calls himself, but he wants to be seen as the new King of the Lombards. So, no, they continue. I mean, all up to Guimar II, who's conquered by, he was defeated by the Normans. They go on and on into the 11th century. Four centuries later, they're wow. still there. In a very different flavor there. I went to a fantastic monastery by Salerno, which is full of Lombard manuscripts. And their manuscripts are really super interesting for the laws, for the medicine, for the geography, really important geographers there. And so that kind of Lombard in that part of the world continues until way later. So Aaron, what's their enduring legacy? I would say their enduring legacy today are some of the sites we've talked about, some of the cities we've talked about. Of course, the wealthiest region um, of Italy, apart from Lazio because of Rome, is Lombardy. And that's perhaps their most important legacy is in you know, the title of that region. And very often when I talk about Lombards, and I get really excited about them, and not just because of the tying the, the hair underneath their chins, because they're so important for Italian history. When I talk about Lombards, uh, they, they assume I'm talking about Lombardia, you know, and the, the modern cities of today's Italian region. That's got to be an enduring legacy there. They so influenced that part of the world that they gave their name to that whole region. You can see some of the cities there are some of the best sites are Lombard. I've already talked about Brescia, and I can't talk enough about that museum that's there. But Pavia, a wonderful city in Cremona, just fantastic cities, of course, the ultimate um, of the cities, Milan. But that's only part of it. I think the enduring legacy also is the language I've talked about. You know, so some of the words that have gotten into Italian and Italians don't even know it. And part of it is that scholarship. It's it's you would never think that one of the enduring legacies of the Lombards is going to be their medicine and their scholarship on geography. But really, it is very important in the medieval period. So I would say that. The next time you go to Italy and you use the words, the ricco is another word. Ricco is meaning rich, is Germanic. That is the language, another enduring legacy. It was quite a humorous post in the New York Times recently, a couple of weeks ago, about men are obsessed with the Roman Empire. It came across that women should ask their male partners, you know, how often do you think of the Roman Empire? And the husband's come back and saying, every day. <laughs> So why don't we think about Lombards? <laughs> That's really funny. We need to be thinking about the Lombards. Here it is. So for all those people who really love the Roman Empire, um, and for for anybody who's interested in European history, the first thing you, you, you think about when you think about the Romans, so they rose and they fell. This is just straight out of given, isn't it? And if you want to understand what happens to Rome in the Roman Empire after that great heyday in the, in the empire, you really need to think about the Lombards. They're the great inheritors of the Roman Empire. And I think what's what's really great about them is they don't just see themselves as 
these Germanic people, they, they also see themselves as the heirs of this Roman culture. So if you if you think about, you know, what happens after we think about Odoacer defeating um, Romulus Augustus, um, Romulus Augustus in 476, as though that's the end of the empire. Well, we'll know what happens. It, it The Roman Empire continues in a, in certainly not in a wealthy way, but culture continues. And who's continuing it? The, the Lombards. It, it's the people who come right in the wake of, you know, that huge crisis of the 6th century when Italy is on its knees in Gothic wars between the Ostrogoths and the Byzantine Empire. The Lombards come right in there and they take it over. They take over huge swathes of Italy for a very long time. And I, I, I would like to know why don't we talk more about the Lombards? I want to know why men aren't impressed, why they're not thinking all the time about the Lombards. I love that. I know, let alone, it seems passe, the Roman Empire compared to the Lombards, and, and it doesn't really. But I mean, in that, it, nobody really thinks about them. So people think about you know, the Roman Empire, and then they go, oh, there's Charlemagne. And through Charlemagne, that ultimately gives rise to the Holy Roman Emperor anything there's gotta be something in between yeah <laughs> yeah it's that gap and those are the lombards it's funny and, and and when you talk about them to italians who are aware of them mostly because of that region they still think oh the long because they're in italian the langobardi so it's not long it doesn't take a huge amount of imagination to realize they're talking about beards and they just think of these wild woolly people that are you know not thinking well, if Pavia is the way it is today, or Milano, or Brescia, it's because of the Lombards. I'm going to give you an example. I know I can, I can get geeky. But when you go to Spoleto, which is one of Italy's treasures, right along the river is a fantastic church, which looks like a Roman temple. And it's the Tempio di Clitunno. And it is utterly gobsmackingly intact. And it looks just like a Roman temple. And it isn't. It's a, it's a Lombard chapel. They don't get the credit that they should be getting. Erin, yeah. thank you so very much. It was great to hear all about the Lombards. And we look forward to catch up with you soon. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller, brought to you by Academy Travel, a leader in small group cultural tours. Visit our website at academytravel.com.au to access blog articles or join our online program of lectures and short courses brought to you by experts around the world.